Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Bynes. I'm Amanda. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Dr. Katie Elson. And together we are the, the Brain, Brain People. People. A group of real practicing mental health professionals. This podcast is a one-stop shop for all your mental health needs. We'll give you the tools to beat depression and anxiety one episode at a time. Are you ready? Let's go. Hello, everybody. My name is Jonathan. I'm a psychiatric PA, and you are listening to the Brain People podcast. Today, we have a very exciting guest. Um, I am joined today with uh, Jim Geiger. Hello, Jonathan. I'm very glad to be here with you. So uh, the reason why this guest is so special to us, uh, we are going to be talking a lot today about uh, mental toughness, um, mental endurance, and getting through really difficult challenges, both physically and mentally. And so, Jim, let's, uh, let's start off with just sort of a basic question. Uh, what makes you qualified to talk about mental toughness? Well, the... Um First of all, I'm a certified uh, personal trainer and also a credentialed life coach, but I've also climbed all the seven summits, the high point in every continent, got the top of the six of them, uh, was thwarted by the avalanche in 2014 on Everest. But through that, all these experiences, the training that I've been through um, and the, the specialized training in life coaching has prepared me to overcome my uh, shortcomings when I'm climbing. And that then I've been able to translate that into uh, helping my clients, uh, either in life coaching or in personal training, to overcome their shortcomings and their limitations that they think they have, they can't do it. Well, if you think you can't do it, guess what? You're correct. So there's a unique aspect about your story that yes. I, I don't, uh, you know, maybe maybe people can kind of hear it in your voice, uh, but how, how old are you, Jim? I'm 75. And what was, because you set, uh, or you were attempting to set a particular record that was related to your age. Was that correct? Yes. I had been um, training for Everest at 67. I was going to go to Everest to the top and be the oldest American at 68 in 2014. Unfortunately, the avalanche that happened stopped everything and closed the mountain. You know, what you accomplished um, was a feat of it in, in itself, right? Um, very few people, I imagine, have, have even gotten close to that, um, let alone with the age right? yes. and uh, certain limitations that, you know, probably are somewhat fabricated by a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And I know that, uh, you know, you probably will have some things to say about um, overcoming some of those yeah. uh, mental limitations in association with your age. Uh, but uh, let's, let's dive in a little bit more into your story. What, what got you into mountaineering and kind of when did you start that journey? Well, the, um, I, had grew up, I grew up in Wisconsin and the high point there is 1,100 feet. So I didn't see any mountains till I was uh, actually 35 when I came into California and saw my first snow-capped peak, Mount Shasta, of all things. I look, whoa, I loved it and never gave any thought to climbing it. Um, and then we went up to Oregon, saw Hood and St. Helens and then Mount Rainier just took my breath away when I saw that. But I never gave it a thought until I moved next to a, a guy when I was 40 um, named Steve. And uh, he and I just started talking. We're about the same age. And, hey, do you want to go climb Mount Shasta? Oh, sure. Why not? Had no idea what I was doing. Uh, and then everything took off from there. I, it took me nine years to get to the top of Mount Shasta. And... Um, 
I, I never thought I would never be able to do it. And finally, I did it at 49. Then I said, well, let's go see what it's like to climb Mount Rainier. And so I, for my 50th birthday, I went to Mount Rainier and barely got back down. And I knew I was in, I need to get in better shape. I'm going to continue doing this. And that's how it all started. Were you a pretty physically fit person before you started the climbing? No, I had stayed fit. You know, I'm, in college, I was always in a physical fitness class, and I was jogging around the neighborhood when I was married and had kids, and but I never did anything intense. So you weren't necessarily an elite athlete at, a, no. at 40 or, or in your 40s, I would <laughs> no. imagine, right? But not by a long shot. Then at 50, I said, oh, my God, I'm in pretty bad shape because my, my legs were just able to get me into my motel room, and I collapsed on my bed and at the bottom of Mount Rainier, and and I, then I had, oh, what am I going to do now? So I found myself a training hill here in Auburn. Uh, and that's what I, I did that for the next 10 years, up and down that hill every Saturday morning. So relative to your age, would you say that you were actually in the best physical shape of your life uh, in that in that age range of your 50s or 60s? I would say I was in the best physical shape when I was going to Mount Everest at 68. Wow. Yeah. I had... Taken a a, um, a test uh, um, at the doctor's office, and he said, "Your fitness level, uh, VO two max, they call it VO two max." He says, "Your fitness level is like an elite athlete at twenty years younger than you." Wow! So holy cow! So that was that's it. That's I'm pretty ready. impressive. Yeah. yeah. So uh, does it take a unique or special kind of person to do what you've done? No. So tell me, I think, I think a lot of people would hear that response and, and say, well, he, he's wrong. Um, but, but why don't you, why don't you give me some of the reasons behind, uh, why, why that's your, why that's your response? Uh, because I've seen a lot of people, um, that just don't believe in themselves. They, they're not, um, they come in with an attitude. Well, I'm not sure I can do that. Well, that, that was the same thing for me. I'm not sure I can do this mountain but I knew I wanted to do that. I think the big key here is that when you see something, uh, have a, you set a goal or you have a dream, the way to that dream or goal is to take these small, sweet steps, one step at a time, and never tell yourself that I can't do it. If you say you can't do it, well, guess what? You're correct. If you say you can do it, guess what? You're correct. Just but go about doing it. And... I, I don't believe in motivation at all, because if you wait for motivation, you, nothing happens. Mm. Because you go to the, you get up in the morning, oh, I don't want to go to the gym, I'm not motivated today. Well, so go to the gym anyway. And when you go to the gym, do what you're going to do. And so the, the way to success is doing what you said you're going to do consistently. And anybody can do that. I'm not unique. I just did the things that I knew would it would take in order to climb the mountains that I climbed, take the classes that I took to to be certified as a NASM specialist, a certified personal trainer, take all the classes and tests to become a life coach. That's what I did. And yes, it was not easy. Yes, I was ready to quit many times. Yes, I failed many times, and that's what it that's the sport. 
So kind of to summarize the point you were making there, it's, it's, uh, not about motivation, so to speak. No. Right. But it's about discipline. Is that, is that the word you might use? Not, not even see when that another word that I don't like motivation and discipline doesn't, okay. neither of those are part of the equation. It's just taking action, hmm. doing what you said you're going to do. What does that mean? Well, I had to take 50 mile bike rides and get them ready for Everest. Did I want to do those? Not every, no, not every time, but I went and did them anyway. I had to go to my training hill every Saturday morning for 10 years. I did that. Uh, did I want to go every time? No, but I went ahead anyway. So you can, I guess you can call that self-discipline, but I call it just taking action towards the goal. I knew that the goal was Mount Whitney or Mount Shasta every year. Or then it became Kilimanjaro and then Denali, et cetera, finally Everest. But along the way, it was these small little things that I would do in the gym or on the bike or on the hill where I was training that I call them actions. I just taking action. So it seems like you, it it sounds like you kind of stumbled upon this, uh, this thing that has essentially dominated like the second half of your life. And in, in that, uh, there's been, uh, that goal, the, the goalpost, so to speak, has kind of shifted throughout those years. So I guess the question, I think a lot of people would say, you know, that is somewhat of an extreme, right? Um, but everybody has these little things that seem beyond their boundaries, beyond their comfort zone. Mm -hmm. And I guess maybe the question that I have for you is how do you go about determining what goals you should be setting? Like, and how do you go about trying to achieve those? What are the, what are maybe, what's a way in which you can kind of formulate an action plan to get you to whatever goal that it is? Well, the, um, the, the way that we frame that as a, in life coaching is there's a um, metaphysical reality and there's a physical reality. Metaphysical reality is where we have our dreams. We're dreaming about something. We all have dreams. Oh, I want to, I want to do this or I want to do that. And then uh, when it comes time to actually implementing that, uh, we, we reach this border. This, there's these voices in our head that are, oh, you can't do that. You're not big enough or you're not tall enough or you're not fast enough or whatever the thing is. You, you're not going to do that. We call that monkey mind. And the only way to shut monkey mind up is to c- continue forward into this border and cross the border into physical reality where we are taking the small, sweet steps one at a time towards our dream, whatever that is. My dream was was Everest. My dream was Kilimanjaro. My dream was Denali. My dream was to pass my NASM certification as a personal trainer, which was one heck of a test, <laughs> and or get my certification and credential as a life coach. Those were my dreams uh, uh, in this latter stage of my life, and I got them done because of each of the small steps placed together one after another. Finally, I got to the to the dream, the goal. What do you think it was? Is there something like inherent in you as an individual? Or do you think there's kind of a, uh, a broad sort of blanket thing that we all have in us to shoot for dreams like what you were, like what you had, right? Because I think for a lot of people, you know, thinking about Everest is, it's a, it's a completely unrealistic dream. Right. Um, so how do we, you know, was it, I guess, what was the drive for you to pursue something that was so unique, something that was so challenging? 
I think the simple answer is that I, I, I knocked off Shasta, finally. That was the springboard. It took me nine years of failure to do that, finally. And I said, hmm, now what? And what I was really interested in after that was, can I do it? Can I do Rainier? Can I do Kilimanjaro? Can I do Elbrus? Can I do Orizai? All these mountains just kind of, okay, I didn't know if I could do them. So it wasn't about the mountain. It was more about me um, looking inside and seeing, oh, can I do that? That'd be kind of cool. And so this was a motivator for me, quote unquote motivator. It was the the, uh, drive to find out at this age, can I do that still? I don't know where that came from. God had these things show up. God provided me with the energy and and fortitude to go do them, but I didn't know if I could do them. Were you somebody before mountaineering that uh, you look back and think you were constantly sort of pushing the limits of what you could physically and mentally do, or just this is just like a bug that you caught (laughs) at some point? Yeah, that that's a great question, and there's nothing I can point to in my past. Um, uh, yeah, I, w- I was, I joined the Marines at, uh, in 1965, spent four years in the Marine Corps and I was challenged every single day to get her done. I mean, and I just, okay, well, I'll show this drill instructor. I can get it done or I'll show my sergeant. I can get it done. That may be something that I was born with, mm-hmm. but it's, and I, I guess that's a lack of quitness. I'm not going to, yeah. I'm not a quitter. And, you know, the, the easiest way to fail is just, just quit. You know, it never was, never entered my mind to, to stop on the end of these and, unless I was not safe. So, but I don't know where this came from other than just that's how I was raised and, and nurtured and, um, well, it seemed, it would seem like the, the military itself does, does foster that sort of environment. That helped. Right. Yeah. And, and you're surrounded with other people that are also, uh, pursuing that, you know, pursuing the goal. Um, and, uh, and it it doesn't, and you, so you have that essential, that, uh, additional accountability that you wouldn't get in sort of the private life, but there's this sort of pervasive, uh, laziness, I guess, you know, in in our Mm -hmm. culture, this lack of mental toughness, especially with, I would say with my generation, that's a little bit more prevalent than the previous generations before it to where it it's, it's far easier for us to just give up when things get difficult. And I know there's, there's a particular part of your story that I wanted to focus on a little bit, mm-hmm. your experience with Mount Everest. Yes. I know, uh, the, the goal was to be the first, as you said, to climb it at the age that you did, and right. that didn't end up happening. So let's, no. let's walk through that story a little bit. What was the reason as to why it didn't? And what was the, uh, like, how did you cope with what happened after the fact? Um, because it was, it's a fairly tragic story. The, yeah, the, the leading up to the, to Everest was quite the challenge. And, and, uh, uh, and it was difficult at, at 68 to acclimate properly. And so there was some of that going on uh, in the movie Ac- Accidental Climber. You'll see my struggle with just acclimating properly. I was wondering, why, why can't I do this? I was in the best shape of my life. And, you know, and then I realized, well, you know, I'm 68 years old. The body doesn't respond as well as it did 40 years ago or 20, even 20 years ago. And uh, so everything is a little bit slower. So I had, uh, I had to develop patience, tremendous amount of patience. 
okay, it's going to happen eventually. And so my, my way of coping with all of that was just to relax. I, I, God's got this for me. He's going to take care of me. I'm going to be okay. And then I, okay, the next day showed up and I had to do whatever I had to do to get higher on the mountain. And then we got into the ice fall uh, the day before the avalanche. And I had a, I, I turned back. We, we only went about halfway anyway. And so we, we turned back and I found out that I hadn't acclimated well enough yet. So I was just waiting. When am I going to acclimate? And then the next morning we heard this huge avalanche. We heard avalanches all day long, all, all day, every day. Hmm. And, but this one was different. We knew something was different because the radio started going off. I didn't hear that before. But all the companies were, were wondering, did some of their Sherpa get killed? Because there was 25 Sherpa in a, in a team going up to Camp 1 and 2. And then the avalanche came down right in the middle and killed 16 of them. And so there was this huge rescue recovery effort that took place right after, started about 6.30, quarter to 7 in the morning with helicopters coming in and, and the teams scrambling up to the site and then teams coming down from Camp 1 to the site to help see if they can get anybody recovered. Um, and then a sadness set in the whole, whole uh, base camp. Just a cloud of sadness just settled in. And we saw the bodies coming off them, uh, hanging from a helicopter one at a time. They bring them over to the base camp and um, they went back for another one. And this would go on for several hours, just bringing bodies back. And we just, we commiserated with one another. We, we talked with one another. We hugged each other and just trying to deal with this immense tragedy that we, unprecedented in all the years on Everest. How do you cope with that? And so what I did was I immediately called my family. We had cell service at, at base camp, and we, I was able to talk to my, my daughter about it, and she wanted to know, and my other daughter as well. We had, we got two daughters, and they both wanted to know, is dad okay? Because there were teams of non-Sherpa right below uh, the team of Sherpa that got killed. So not, there was no non-Sherpa that got killed. Uh, but had it been 10 minutes later, there would have been a bunch of climbers killed in that avalanche. So that was the first way to reach out, to make contact with my family, to get that connection, uh, emotional connection was very, very important to uh, have that at that moment. And I uh, was so glad to have self-service. That, that was huge. And then we, then we just went about our business, getting ready for maybe climbing. We didn't know. So we shifted gears. Um, I, don't, I don't like packing off this sadness in a, in a box, but it's kind of what we had to do. We just set it aside for the moment and then went on with our business. And then I, I was just all about acclimating, getting ready in case we were going to climb. Then I'd visit the sadness every so often. Just let it, when it came in, I just let it come in. And uh, to, to reject it is a mistake, in my opinion. It, it, you need to embrace that, even though it's, it's so hard, hard at times. But I embraced that sadness whenever, that, whenever it came, because it, it, 
it comes and goes for me anyway. That's how it does. And um, that's how I dealt with it. Then when I got home, I wrote about it. Um, I put in, it's in my book. I wrote um, my blogs. I was blogging the whole time I was on Everest. And then when I got home, I specifically blogged about uh, this particular incident. And then, um, and then now what? What do I do now? Uh, it's like my whole life had no more rudder. I, so I, my blog was life without a rudder. And that's, um, so writing it out, uh, really, that's how I, I do my best grieving. And that really helped a lot. Yeah, that's a, it's an incredibly heavy story. And there's so many different, there's so many different <laughs> thoughts and questions I have about that. Uh, for the sake of time, though, I did want to kind of focus in on one little thing that you said, because yeah. a lot of our listeners, you know, they, they're listening to this podcast because we're primarily a mental health uh, related podcast, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that you said there is, you know, when you have the sadness that kind of that kind of washes over you, yeah. you know, it's 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 not necessarily healthy to reject it, and you should embrace it. Um, right. One one question I might have for you for a lot of our listener listeners that struggle with depression, mm-hmm. right? And I know that you're not you're not a clinician, um, you know that 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 treats depression per se, but to those individuals, maybe some of the clients that you've had that have dealt with depression, and you're talking to them about embracing sadness. Yes, you know sometimes there can be this difficulty in in terms of what is sadness versus what is depression in in somebody that deals with both, right? Yeah. Um, but how can we embrace sadness or how can we embrace depressive feelings without letting that sort of overwhelm us? Well, the I think the simple way is to recognize first of all this is sadness. I'm not depressed. It's sad, and um, and to to say okay, this this is the time I can do something about it. I can just let it be here. Um, I'm not going to work right now, so I I can just be with it for whatever time it's going to take, and then set it aside again and let it come back. And that's how I've done it. Um, I just lost my sister, and that was pretty tough. Again, another sad thing, and but if I was to reject it and try to squelch the feelings with uh, substances, then it would I would never have the ability to embrace that sadness and and let it wash over me and just be with me. Actually, I'm I'm with the sadness for whatever time it takes. I cry or whatever it, it needed to happen, and then then it kind of goes away for a while, and when it comes back, I deal with it again. But it's not trying to re- run away from it with music or TV shows or whatever else, substances that it won't, it doesn't allow me then to um, properly grieve. And it just takes time. It sounds like after this experience at Everest, you had a lot of self-reflection yeah, and you needed to kind of determine where do you go from here? Correct. So tell me a little bit about that journey and how you kind of restructured your life and recreated these goals that you had so that you could continue moving in a, in a, in a forward direction. Well, the, uh, the big thing was, huh, I was there to do something big and that didn't happen. You know, my dream of of getting to the top of Everest is over, and I recognize that that may that dream was not meant to be. God had a different plan for me, um, and actually, the story ended up um, a lot different than we had set out planned. The story, you know, in the movie, 
because these guys were following. Actually, one guy, Tom Pollard, was following me up the mountain with his camera and to watch me summit Everest. Well, that's not going to happen. So that was a huge disappointment, another sadness. And uh, so, again, I had to grieve that. Okay, now what? That's why I wrote the blog, Life Without a Rudder. You know, I've lost this opportunity. We had this huge uh, loss of life on the, on the mountain. And I was just kind of writing to see what was going to happen. Because when I write, somehow there's there's things I'm not thinking about that, oh, I got to write about that. So it, it reveals a lot of things that I'm not even aware of when I'm writing. And that's that's what happened. Then I knew I had to reinvent my life at 68. And okay, now what? So it was more, it really showed me how important family is. I had uh, a really young great, great grandkids. I needed to spend more time with them. I needed to spend more time with my daughters and my friends. So family and friends became hugely important after this tragedy on Everest and my loss of that dream that I had uh, going to the top. But I never lost interest in, in climbing. I just, I just knew it wasn't going to be Everest. And that's how I, I dealt with all that. So you've, you've still, uh, you're still doing regular climbs since then? Well, I, I yes. Um, I'm taking my daughter up and my younger daughter up Lassen in August. I'm going to go with my daughter, older daughter to Machu Picchu next year. We, together, we climbed uh, Mauna Kea in uh, 2019 and, and Mount Fuji in 2019. Um, and so I've been climbing ever since Everest, but just not Everest. So you, uh, you mentioned that your blog, it's called life without a rudder. Is that correct? That was one of the blogs. Yeah. That was one of the blogs. Yeah. I really, that, that name is very interesting to me. Um, can you, can you explain to me a little bit of the inspiration behind that? Because I have my own sort of perception about mm-hmm. what that means, but I want to hear it directly from you. Well, it, yes. Cause I, I came back and I thought my whole life was, um, going to be different. Um, had I summited Everest. And so now I'm in this boat without, where am I going? And it, it's just at the wind, whim of the winds. And it, because the rudder, I don't even have a rudder here. I'm, where am I going? I didn't know. And uh, so by writing that blog, it, it really demonstrated to me that I don't need to know. God's going to be, he's in charge here and he's going to show me where I need to be going. And that's kind of what happened. You know, it was climbing those two mountains with my daughter, these wonderful trips to Japan and, and Hawaii. Uh, my other daughter, Deanna, we're going to go to Lassen, and, and we're now we're going to set a trip to Dubai because she wants to see the one of the largest fish tanks in the world, and that's in Dubai. So it'd be a great trip to go there with her, you know, and then see my, my great-grandkids as much as I can. And that's what God wanted me to be doing. He says, and I can still climb, you know. I, I'm hesitant to say this, but I'm thinking that maybe there's still a chance I could climb an 8,000 meter peak and be the oldest non-Asian to climb an 8,000 meter peak, just not Everest. What, uh, what, are, what mountains would, uh, well, kind of be in the running? There's 14, 8,000 meter peaks. Okay. Uh, and they're, they're all above what? 25,000 feet, 24,000 wow. feet, something. And one of them is Choi Oyu near Everest. And it's the easiest of the 14, for uh, 8,000 meter peaks. 
So it's kind of like a training ground for Everest. Yeah. So going back to my question about the blog. Yeah. Uh, so the takeaway in doing the blog was that, you know, your, your, your life maybe has always been something without a rudder, but you maybe fully started to recognize that God was in control of the wind. Correct. And that, yeah, my life has not always felt like it's without a rudder because I had all these mountain deserts kept showing up and I'm here, I'm going again. And so the, um, that period of time after Everest was really like, I'm just spinning around in the water, not knowing which direction I'm going to go. And then he started blowing the, the wind uh, in a certain direction, not necessarily where I wanted to go, but that happens to be just exactly where I need to be. Hmm. And that's how it turned out. Okay. Really cool. So let's talk a little bit about some of the techniques, some of the practical applications or, or tips that you have uh, for some of your clients that you're mm -hmm. coaching uh, that feel as if they are in that boat and they're just spinning circles. They're really stuck. Maybe they're going through a difficult time in their life. Maybe they're going through uh, like a midlife crisis or something mm -hmm. along those lines. What does that process look like of, uh, you know, in coaching them to get out of that position? Yeah. The, the, um, the one thing I note when somebody says they're stuck, um, I really, um, I, I challenge them. Why do you think you're stuck? You know, what is it about the stuckness that has you concerned? And what I find out is that they just haven't taken the next step. You're only stuck because you haven't taken the next step. So taking the next step is really the challenge. But finding out which direction to take the next step is what I work on with them so that they, they have a direction in mind. And it may be that they need to shift again, but they're at least in a direction um, and they're stepping consistently because, the as I mentioned, success is doing what you said you would do consistently. And that means taking the next step, the next step, the next step, wherever it's leading you. Um, and then if that's not the right path and you're listening God's going to tell you, well, you got to shift a little bit. So it's all the whole life process is about shifting. Just like we're in an airplane, he's never on course. He's always correcting the course. You're, you're never on course, but then you're, you're in that direction, and eventually you're going to get there. But it's all about shifting. So we call this, um, this shift is what I work with my clients on, seeing where to shift to. And then they're not stuck anymore. Do you, you find that a lot of your clients, I'm guessing it probably falls into two camps sort of specifically in terms of a lot of them when they do feel stuck, it's so it's a either a lack of direction or they know the direction. They're just hesitant or resistant or fearful about taking it. Is that Well, there's a lot of the fear of, of taking the next step and there's a lot of uncertainty in taking the next step. And that's where they're, they're in coaching because I, by we all have our own answers. I can, as a coach, tell them which direction to take, but I help them see. I lift the fog so that they can see, oh, yeah, that's where I need to go. That's what I, that's my dream. I want to see if I can do that. And then so that's, that's the process of coaching so that they get out of this mire stuckness um, so that they're at least moving in some direction, whether it's the right direction or not. We won't know until they move a little bit. So that's the process I take. And then the other piece of this that comes in, especially with people that are challenging themselves for uh, a big goal or a big dream, is accountability. Whether that's um, a partner that you're training with 
or someone that you're very close to that you can tell them, well, I'm going to do, go do this, hold me accountable. Or in some cases, um, I, I had a trainer, but I also had to be self-accountable on taking my bike rides or doing the my training hill because my trainer wasn't along with me. But I would tell him that I'm going to go do these things. Then they check in. Oh, did you go do that? Yeah. So that's how it works. It's okay. being accountable to someone and yourself in these in these situations. So what about for people that you okay, so you help them with gaining some clarity on yes. which direction that they'd like to go in. Correct. Uh, but they have just a lot of difficulty. So there's a lot of resistance. As you yeah. said, there's maybe a lot of fear. Uh, or they, they just have a lot of excuses or justifications as to the reason why they can't or won't or, you know, whatnot, right. don't want to take that mm-hmm. next step. How do you get them to get, I know you don't like the word motivation, but motivated or <laughs> to actually take that action to get moving forward? Well, it's, it, first of all, the understanding of what's going on in their head, it's all this, we call it monkey mind, it's self-talk, negative self-talk. And so I, I help them see that the self-talk is just, not helping them at all. It's actually hindering them. And so the self-talk piece of it is what very, very important for us to um, to talk through so that they get a good understanding of how to shut it down. So when they hear this, um, that this negative uh, self-talk, they can say, thank you for sharing. I'm going to do this over here. I'm not going to listen to this. It is not helping me. It's negative. I'm putting it back in the cage, uh, and on. I'm shifting over this piece over here. This is where I belong, not in this negative pit. So essentially, you help people identify the perspective or the mindset that they have, the the thoughts that they have about the reasons why they don't want to do the thing that yeah. you know they're they're wanting to do, right? Right. Uh, and then help them realize some of the inaccuracies or just the general unhelpfulness of that talk, and how do you get them to reframe it if the thought process is so ingrained? Like, how do you get them to actually believe that the new mindset is actually something to believe and that the old mindset is actually not the more realistic of the two? Well, the, what I let them know is that the uh, negative thoughts are everywhere. They're always floating around in the universe and we're subject to them all the time. And some of us just happen to say, Oh, I'm, I like that one. I'm going to grab onto that one and make it mine, make it true for me. Well, it's not true. And so I, I help them see that they can let go of that. They don't have to hold on to this anymore. Just let it go. It's not, God didn't create you as a negative person. You are, you are created whole and complete as you are right here with all the positivity that he gave you. We just need to tap into the positivity and let go of the negativity and the more we let go on a daily basis, like, hey, that's not me. A lot of people are thinking, this really is me. This negative thinking is really me. No, it's not. It's not of God. And so, therefore, this is, this is the, the awakening that I'm, I'm trying to help them see that they don't have to be stuck in this negative thinking all the time because it's not who they are. They're whole and complete, created by in the image of God, and if they just need to be demonstrating that into the in the universe by taking these positive steps rather than staying stuck in a negativity, that's how I work with them on this. 
And it's just a, it's a shift that takes a while sometimes. Just doesn't snap your fingers and oh, no more negativity. No, that's not how it happens. Would you, would you say that if you had, if you had uh, understood a lot of these concepts, that a lot of the mental battles that you were uh, probably enduring during your mountaineering process would have, would have been a lot easier? Well, of course. And there was, uh, luckily I had some great guides that helped me because the, uh, the one example I like to use is on Denali. And I was about halfway up this mountain. We're pulling sleds. We got several hundred pounds to haul up this mountain. And the sled keeps sliding back off. You know, it just, I told my guys, I don't know if I can do this. Mm-hmm. It was one of those negative thoughts that I was having. Geez, I don't like being here. I just, I'm not sure. And he, what he, he said to me that if you knew you could do this, you wouldn't have to be here. That just shook me loose. I said, oh, my God, so right. I say that, say that one more time. If you knew you could do this, you wouldn't have to be here. <laughs> sure enough, I was there to find out if I can do Denali. I'm having a hard day. I don't know if I can do that. Well, if I knew I could do it, I wouldn't have to be here. So he just snapped me right out of my funk. And in that moment, that whole shift occurred for me. He's right. I'm in this negative funk speaking things to myself or listening to things about myself that I don't need to be listening to. I need to be over here. I need to be enjoying this journey because the mountain is beautiful. And that's that that one particular moment really stood stood out in my mind. That's re- that's really cool. I, I, I like that. Let's uh, let's talk about real quick and uh, we'll kind of close up and give a little bit of a, of a summary here. Yeah. But uh, there are a couple sort of practical um, concepts I'd say that I kind of derived from the last few minutes of our conversation. It seems that if, you know, if you are feeling somewhat stuck and you f- feel as if, uh, you know, your mental fortitude needs some practice, right? One of the, th- one of the first steps would be gaining some clarity on which direction you should take, yes. right? What that next step is going to be. Mm-hmm. And in making that next step, it sounds like one of the big things is getting some accountability, right? And so uh, you, it, I'm sure there's there's multiple different ways in which accountability can be uh, accrued. Maybe that's family, friends. Maybe it's uh, using somebody such as yourself, like a life coach, uh, right? And then yeah. uh, once you've once you've gotten that accountability, you've created that clarity. You have to start working on you know what are the own sort of internal resistance uh, patterns that you've kind of set up in your own mind and how you right. can start to overcome those things. Yep. Uh, and that's that's something we do a lot in you know mental health, obviously in psychiatry and psychology. We're working constantly um, on on that negative self talk. Well, one of the interesting things, Jonathan, about this journey is that when you get closer and closer to the goal, the negative voices get louder and louder. Mm. They want to stop you, and that you just need to be aware this is going to happen. The closer you are to making that that big step that you want to take the more determined that, that voice is that we're not going to let you take this next step. That awareness is, is huge in understanding how to go forward because it, it's going to be there no matter who you are. I've had that plenty of times. I'm, I'm facing this negative talk all the time. But it's what do you do with it? How do you understand it? And knowing it's, that's not me, that's not who I am, and just going forward anyway. I know you may have heard of David David Goggins. Um, he's a he's a well known sort of uh, uh, athlete and speaker uh, about mental toughness. And one of the things that he mentions is the br- the brain has this 
uh, like a car might have a governor on uh -huh. it, right? The brain sort of has this natural governor and he believes that people only use about 40% of their actual, you know, physical and mental capabilities when it comes to this concept of mental toughness. Yeah. And so, you know, the, uh, the idea of just sort of constantly pushing up against that governor and making it more and being more and more comfortable over time with the uncomfortable. And as you do that. Whoa, you just said something that I had learned a long time ago was my mentor coach said, because I'm not comfortable doing this. Well, you have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. Simple as that. And knowing that the closer you are to your achieving your goal, the harder it's going to be because there's all these forces against you. And that makes it so easy to go forth because you already understand. My, I know what's going to happen. I'm just ignoring it. Yeah. Another thing he says that I think is relevant to this conversation, and we'll go ahead and, and, and close with this. Uh, but, you know, what he says is he trains the way that he trains. So he, I think he, he, he runs and he does all sorts of other sort of athletic events, but very similar, you know, in terms of just the intensity at what, you know, what mm -hmm. you were doing with your mountaineering, he does those sorts of things to become comfortable in the uncomfortable yep. so that when life in and of itself gets uncomfortable, you're better able to handle the emotional and the mental stresses associated with that. Perfectly said. Yeah. I couldn't have said it better. Well, yeah. thank you so much, Jim, for coming and yeah. having this conversation with us. It was really a pleasure meeting you. I'm sure our audience got a, a lot of value um, just from your story and from your insight. Uh, where can we uh, learn more about you? My uh, website would be the place to go. It's summitleadercoaching.com. Excellent. And yeah. if they want to get in touch with you, I'm assuming the uh, the information is is on that website. Yeah. And it sounds like you also have some, uh, you have the video, uh, the movie as well. Movie's on there and my book is on there. The book is entitled Take the Next Step. Excellent. And uh, it's all about, it's my memoir actually of my whole life. Very and, cool. And uh, a lot of lessons from the mountains. Uh, I'd be happy to talk to anybody that wants to talk about this stuff. Uh, but yeah, thank you very much for having me here. Today, Jonathan, has been my pleasure. Absolutely. So if you only take one thing away from today's show, remember this. If mental illness is a whole person problem, then it must have a whole person solution. I'm Jonathan Edens. And I'm Jim Geiger. And you've been listening to The, the Brain, Brain People, People Podcast. Podcast. To hear more episodes, find us on social media, or support us financially, visit thebrainpeoplepodcast.com. 